This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Hague. This is the Books Podcast. Uh, I'm Tim Hague, and with me is, well, Christopher Fowler. Counts as an old friend of this site now because uh, we've uh, talked. So thank you very much for uh, talking to us again about the new book, which is Nyctophobia. Nice well, to be back, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> good. That's an easy first question, though. Um, Nyctophobia. What does that mean? Uh, fear of the dark. Fear of the dark. Uh, was going to go with some other title, like possibly Fear of the Dark, but uh, I thought it'd be quite interesting to have a title that a lot of people might have to look up. Is it a real thing? Yeah, yeah, no, it really is. And and the odd thing about phobias that I mean, most phobias you're born with and they're incredibly irrational, but Fear of the Dark is the only phobia you can catch and transmit to other people, apparently. It's a virus. I can't like a virus. virus. What is it? What is, how, how would that work, though? I think because if you tell a child, you know, there's something in the cupboard and it's going to come and get you when it's dark, the child gets frightened. And there's a logic to it. So it's not as irrational as vertigo or claustrophobia. You know, there's a, there, I mean, there are obvious, obviously there are psychological states, but a lot of phobias are just completely irrational, like arachnophobia or allurophobia, fear of spiders. Well, there's a, a fear of beards. Yes, is a good right, one. Yeah. Which we about unless one you ever met moment. Tom Dryberg, in which case it was completely understandable. <laughs> Let's talk about fear for a minute. I once, I once years ago, <laughs> because this is the kind of person I am, I looked up the etymology of, of fear, and and it goes back to a very ancient word that means the, the that feeling we have about something that is in wait for us, something around the corner or in the dark. That, that is the whole point about fear. It's, it's, it's an emotion that's purely forward-looking. That's interesting. So it's a foreboding. So it's, mm. it's kind of... So it's not something that's arrived yet. That's, that's a disturbing state, isn't it? I mean, that, that's really what we trade on in these kind of, you know, in the thrillers and chillers. Cause that's... This is uh, very explicitly a ghost story. Nyctophobia yeah. is a ghost story. Yeah. Um, and and even, even more of a sub-genre, it's, it's a haunted house story. Yeah. I, 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 can you have ghost stories that are not haunted house stories? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, think of Charles Dickens' The Railwayman. Oh, okay. Or Signal, is it Signalman, I think it's called. Railwayman. But this uh, is a haunted house. This is a haunted house because I read something that, well, partly because I'd never written a haunted house story before, and they're quite, they have quite specific rules to them. And also because I came across this idea that there are no haunted houses, there are only haunted people. Which which kind of gave me a way in, but it's an interesting trope because yeah. every, people do think of places being haunted, don't they? Yeah, but it's in fact it's meant to be much more about the the, the people who experience it than the building itself. And so the argument is that there is no such thing as a haunted building. But your haunted house is very particular. Tell me about the house because it's 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 a it's almost the most important character in the book, I would say. Yeah, well, because I because I steeped myself in haunted house stories before I did this, and in haunted house movies, um, I kept coming across the same things over and over again. And obviously, the biggest single thing is there's an awful lot of creeping around in the dark in haunted houses because that's a large part of it. So I thought I typically decided to set myself the most awkward problem and have a house in permanent daylight <laughs> and sunshine. In fact, you've called it Hyperion House as well. Hyperion House, indeed, which, yes. which means the house of permanent light. Yes. <laughs> so the idea of this woman who, whose, whose husband has bought her this place because she has a fear of the dark 
and he specifically bought it so that she will always be in daylight and bright warm sunshine and then i've made the house very very happy welcoming warm place so i'd kind of you know deliberately set myself up with a horrible trap to <laughs> fall into from the outside it's not a real place i mean it's so vivid this this place it, you, that you i mean i can see it I've, I've read the book and you describe it in detail and there's a there's like a, a it's not a belvedere it's a sun trapped uh, almost an observatory in the middle of bang in the middle of it and all, all the windows are angled into into mirrors so that the light is in every corner of every room but and and you didn't come across this place and go oh this is fantastic i'm going to use this it's an amalgam of a couple of places one of them is a sir john Soane museum in holborn because uh, the extraordinary thing about that is there's an, as you probably know very well, Tim, there's a central atrium with light coming from the top and there are mirrors that angle and can be twisted. This is this was for when they were teaching art classes in the house uh, to release light further down into the house. That was one influence. And the other one was my ex-agent uh, lives in a small town in Glycia and it's really very much the town in the book. And there were houses that just faced the sun and have this ochre colour all the time. In fact, if you go to the Costa Brava, you, uh, you go to the uh, villages where Salvador Dali painted, you see this light, um, this, this astonishing light. Uh, it's a sort of sandy colour and it turns up again and again in, in his pictures. Well, you, you've mentioned where it is. This is where we're in Spain. We're in Andalusia, yeah. um, which you you know so, very well. I was a little a little um, a little surprised. I mean, delighted, but surprised to find uh, you because you, you're writing uh, about Spain. Because you know, Christopher Fowler's London is is very much a a, a part of a lot of the things you've written, um, and. I, I, I went, oh, that's interesting. But uh, was there a reason for it or it just needed to be there for the... No, there was a definite reason. And that is that um, I'd done a lot of research actually in the, about the Middle East for, for another book that isn't out yet. And one thing you keep coming back to is the contrast between dark and light. And one of the problems of, of, of England, it's very easy to fall back into. It was a rainy day, the wind was coming up and the wet <laughs> leaves and, you know... Yeah. <laughs> and the low light and I thought well yeah it's been sort of done to death and I like paintings by people like de Chirico where you get this very clear sense of of the black black shadows and the bright bright light and I thought that's exactly what I need for the story this sense of encroaching shadows because we we haven't yet said it that the the concomitant to the house of perpetual light is inevitably a, a house of, of eternal darkness as well. And uh, I, we're, we're not going to discuss the plot a lot because I don't want to spoil it. In fact, that's one of the problems with a book like this, isn't it? Is, is that <laughs> yeah. it's, a, um, yeah. it, it's, it's, a, it's a seduction almost. You, you, you have to pay your, your uh, details out one by one and, and, and suck your reader in. Is it, um, well, it was uh, Cyril Connolly, do you remember, said that writing mm. a bestseller is an exercise in seduction and in particular a thriller is isn't it very much so and you're sort of you're withholding information as well but i've really tried to make it feel as if there was no information to be withheld here that it was all there for you to see if you only looked at it in the right light as it were so um i think that's one of the things and also um i'd started seeing a lot of uh, uh, haunted house movies which um, traditionally, they have this, you know, the swirling fog. I mean, like the others is obviously a great mm. example, um, but it's set in a sort of foggy netherworld. 
And uh, there's also one called Darkness, which explicitly references light and dark. And I thought I, want, I really wanted to. Yeah, there was I really wanted to make it very visually real because also the other thing with these uh, with haunted house stories is there are a set of things you have to do. There, there are certain characters you have to have. You have as to soon have as the, the housekeeper. Oh, you have to you have, to have the lock room, the yep. keys that nobody can find. Yep, yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you have to have you have to have the the. Um, the the south faced housekeeper. I mean, you've got to. And an equally sinister gardener. Sinister gardener. And she, uh, what's she called? She's uh, Mrs. Uh, what, what's her name? The housekeeper. Uh, yes, I do. I <laughs> probably remember more. Than Delgadillo. Yes. Delgadillo. Delgadillo. I was going to get you to pronounce it. I remember. Delgadillo. It, but I uh... <laughs> because when you get two L's in Spanish, the second one sounds sounds yeah. like a Y, doesn't it? Yeah. So um, yeah, the super sinister housekeeper. You know who knows more than she's letting on. Of course, you need uh, you, you normally need a child who can actually sort of. Um, I didn't want to put huge the kind of huge, gory shocks in that you, you would get in certain kinds of stories of this nature. I wanted them to be the ones that creep up on you and mm. give you an uncomfortable feeling. I was going to say there are, you do get the money shots. It's not it's yeah. not that you you yeah. don't shy away from. That, yeah. but, you, but there's nothing. There's nothing Stephen King about it. There's nothing. No, there's no actors in the head, or, or it's. Mm. And I, the one great thing about having kids in them is then you can also have. Uh, there's in. I remember the Spanish film Darkness. There's a kid and a, a pencil that keeps rolling away, and he says something to his mom like, "Oh no, have you got any more pencils? Oh no, you know because the, the the person under the bed keeps taking mine, and then he throws it away. So he throws it away so lightly, you go. Oh, that's really horrible. I don't like that. And it's kind of reaching for the same, you know, matter of factness that sort of leads you in. And, and then you stop and you think, that's not very nice. I'm really bothered by that. Mm. Well, it's what you want. Little things that bother you. Because yeah. things that you can't tell anybody else about, because they're not actually that important, except if mm. they're happening. Yeah. And the other thing about Spain, I want to come back to Spain, is that because it, for constructional reasons, you've got it there. But it gives you all that history as well, doesn't it? I, I think that the British still don't really understand how how much impact the Spanish Civil War still has, and, and the Franco time still has on 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 contemporary Spaniards. And you were able to use that as well to to to. I think it's a shocking a lack of there's a lack of knowledge because partly because I think when um, uh, cut price travel travel opened up in the seventies, we associated Spain with Torremolinos and Benidorm, and we. We we didn't really stop and think about what Spain was just going, coming out of then with the Franco era, and one of the most shocking things that struck me uh, was that the so many of many of the the kids who were say sort of seventeen, eighteen, nineteen during the Spanish Civil War who helped out and handed out pamphlets and gave bread to pensioners and this sort of thing uh, were then you know branded anti-Franco. And then after the war was over, they had to go back to their villages and live with that. And they were gently and carefully picked on or removed. There's a very famous case of the 13 Rosas, the, the 13 young women who were all executed long after they'd gone back to their villages because their, their neighbours actually um, dobbed them in with the militia and got them into, uh, into military... Um, uh, prisons because of it and even then the neighbors actually they thought they were just teaching the girls a bit of a lesson um i think they actually turned up to the police stations with bread 
for the girls. And then the police station, the police officers said, well, the girls won't be needing that because they'll be executed shortly. And the neighbours were horrified. They didn't realise they'd gone that far. And this legacy continued for a very long time. And I, I have friends in Spain who are still on different sides of um, uh, the argument because of their family histories. Another thing that we can talk about without giving anything away, is, is the characters. Now, um, your principal character is this young woman, Callie, who's just got married uh, to uh, an older uh, Spanish man, and, and he, he buys this house for them to live in. And for constructional reasons, of course you have to write it in the first person. How much of a problem is that? Because I'm looking at you now, and you're not going to get away with being a woman. <laughs> well, having just been through this... I mean, I, I'm amazed I went back to it because I, I wrote a book called Plastic, which was, it was the most protracted birth I've ever had on a book. And it was written in the first person female. And that's how it was. I started it. It took nearly seven years to get published. It went through maybe 20 drafts. Um, it became the book that couldn't be published. It got bootlegged. Bits of it turned up on the internet. One Canadian publisher got so over-enthusiastic that he printed up half a dozen copies, um, much to my agent's horror. <laughs> yeah. um, but the interesting thing at the time was, at that time, you couldn't be a man writing first-person female. There was, a bit of a, there was a bit of a thing in the publishing world about a male writing as a woman. And it, was, it didn't last very long, and people kind of got over it, and it changed. But having done it before, I wanted to do it again because... I needed a woman's sensibility, and I also knew the man was going to be away on business a lot. So I needed her to be the one who was experiencing things and thinking about what she was experiencing. And, and experiencing it firsthand as well. Because yeah. it's not just that she's your lead character, it's, that you, it's in the first person. Yeah, so she could talk about her feelings, whereas, whereas with a man, you know, men don't talk about their feelings as much. It, it's just harder. In fact, I can't think of many examples... Yeah, where a ghost story is, narr is narrated by a male, I mean, not a not a long form one. I mean, I suppose the biggest influence on me would have been the Innocence, the Turn of the Screw, yes, Henry James, the the because. Screw. But th th there are other uh, um, sort of uh, ancestors of this. I I thought because of the house and and the light and dark, I thought of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde as well, with with you know a, a frontage that that presents that big respectable thing, and then something in back which is which is sinister. Uh, it goes back even as far as that. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I I tend to work in contrasts a lot. I mean, I often end up with two characters representing different things, and I mean, you really do. You need something to bounce off. With that, I think one of the other problems was that with a female protagonist, you had to be quite careful not to make them this kind of. There was a there was a fashion in the you know from the eighteen eighties through to the nineteen sixties of the neurotic female who wasn't sure what she was seeing or believing. Um, the neurotic woman was was a kind of a standard trope of these kind of stories, and that doesn't wash anymore. So I, I wanted to make a strong but there had to be some damage also in her past past to make her interesting how um, happy are you about uh, about the all, all the all the conventions and all the the necessary um uh, elements the tropes i mean do you do you embrace them gleefully or do you look at them and think well how can i subvert that one way or another well i know i love them i mean i think writers love rules i mean man we love rules 
I think more rules the better. But the, the great thing about the rules is 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 learning how to make them fresh, because you can't just break them. You you, you have to kind of twist them to your own ends. So I got the haunted house, and I thought, right, I've got to make this incredibly sunny, welcoming place uncomfortable at some point. And and of course, the great thing about how, homes is you have to keep going back to them. You know, you never get away from them. From them. Well, another thing you do, of course, is you have to make them inaccessible. Mm. Uh, because otherwise, why don't you just go? It's, it's the big problem, I think, with writing these days. Almost any kind, you know, with mobile phones these days, you, you have to put yourself in a position where you, you, you can't just say, well, why don't you just call? Yeah. Because, you know, that, that, that's the obvious thing to do in so many circumstances, which is what the pencil rolling away is. You'd never make a phone call for something like that. No, no, as these are the small things that, are, that accrue and slowly build up into something. And you start to look back and you go, oh, actually, all these things are starting to fit together. Well, yeah, otherwise, yeah, call 911. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. I, I hate um, horror films where five teenagers in a van can't get mobile reception because I always think it's lazy. And so when I do the detective novels, I mean, they're set in London, I always make sure that the murders happen right underneath CCTV. because, <laughs> And then I have to deal with it. And I have to ha find a way around it. Can't just say, oh, that camera wasn't working. Those phones weren't My working. battery has run out. Yeah, know, no. Always. Which you see in thrillers all the time these days. Yeah. No, you, 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 we are connected up to you know, almost infinity. So um, yeah, but it, for, I mean, for a writer, it's just, it's it's the sort of John le Carre problem, isn't it? The Cold War finishes. Find another way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Just find a way around it. Yeah. That's what we do. It's part of our job. I, I don't have a problem. The, with that. the other big thing for writers, of course, is movies. Do do you have a movie in the back of your mind when you're sitting down and writing this, or, or are you able to shut it out? Uh, what you mean, if other you do, people's? By the way, I'm going to ask you for the cast. Who's going to play? What? <laughs> oh gosh, you mean other people's movies? Or do I? No, am I thinking? I mean, about... this this oh, would right. make a film. Would it, uh, could you see it? Or yeah. Do you see it while you're writing? That's really what I'm asking. No, Why are I'm you watching this. Film totally, movie? I'm watching the movie in my head. I mean, I've always been a very visual writer, and you know, I've always been as interested in how something looks and feels. I have a problem with with movies that don't establish shots properly. So there's an action sequence and you don't really understand who's standing where. You can't get the sense of the weight and the heft and the push and pull of a scene. And I think the same applies in a book. You have to be able to understand what's at stake, where, who people are exactly, where they're standing. I mean, there's, there's a sort of visual thing you need to bring to it. So color is important, you know, um, you have to really establish things properly. And that sort of weighs you down a bit. But the funny thing is with, with the Haunted House book, that weight goes in your favour. Yes. Um, it's, it's the worst thing to do, the worst thing to have in, a, in an action thriller. I could no sooner write a Jack Ryan thriller or a um, uh, Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher. Because it's such an astonishing ability to establish everything w without description because there's virtually no description in them and yet you still buy into it because it, you know it, it would you think it would just fly away and, and not be st established on the page now with a haunted house story the great thing is every every detail you add builds to the reader's mental picture of what they're going to experience and this is oh, you're quite right you are a very visual writer this is an incredibly visual book and i, I thought it came off beautifully because i could see everything as it was happening and and you need to for for a ghost story yeah, I think so. And I, but it was funny. I, I, I also made a kind of rule to myself that uh, if there was any humour in it, it, it have, would have to be right near the front, uh, or, or uh, just linked to one, one or two characters, because 
because once things get serious, they have to be as serious as a heart attack. They, you cannot afford. And I've got this terrible habit of putting humour into leaven situations. Well, this, this humour is right. The, the, the very beginning, actually, one of the best things about the book, which is full of good things, is the beginning is, is written with such uh, verve and, and, and colour and liveliness that one, one sits down... Uh, reassured <laughs> that it's going to be a good ride. You know, that very first page, I thought, oh, yes, I am going to enjoy it. I knew I was going to enjoy it from, from page one because what you'd done is, it seemed to me, is you treated that as in the same way you treat it if it was a short story. You didn't have time to waste. You needed to get everything across in those first couple of pages as, you know, like that. And, um, and that, I thought, you succeeded. Yeah, it's kind of... it's. I've got this allergy to books that start with a long description of the weather <laughs> or um, scene setting. Or House you know. of Cards. Have you read House of Cards? There's like five pages of a wasp buzzing around the Houses of Commons or something. Oh. And I, I, I didn't get further than that. No, no. Great on the screen. I mean, I suppose, I suppose going against that, you'd take something like Titus Groan, which spends, you know, seven pages describing a hallway, you know, in the, first, in the, beginning, of the beginning of the book. And I always thought it was almost like Mervyn Peake was testing his reader. It's like, if you can get beyond the Hall of Bright Carvings, you have a wonderful story awaiting well, you. Well, he was a strange little man, so he <laughs> might have been doing that. You, on the other hand, are not a strange little man. You are lovely. And this, Nyctophobia, is terrific. Really enjoyed it. So, Chris, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you very much. I'm um, glad it's you did. out about now. Uh, yeah, in about a week's time. Yep. And I think it's going to be... I don't know, I've got the American edition, so I'm not completely sure how much the British edition is. About nine quid, I think. About nine Something quid. Like that. A bargain. Bargain. Snip. Yeah. Chris, thank you very much. Great pleasure, Tim. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.